Uh, so as the questions are pouring through, I hope you'll get them in. I hope you've been thinking all day about what you might want to ask Eric. Um, Eric, I'll start us off by, by asking a question that's been on my mind, especially over the last couple of hours, uh, just to get us rolling. You've got a room here that's, that skews uh, pretty heavily towards corporate and big enterprise entrepreneurs. Uh, you've also, of course, got government and, uh, and startups and nonprofits represented as well. But uh, amongst all the sort of differences and collisions of ideas and projects, there's been a, a kind of constant thread that in the conversations I've been a part of and the ones that I've eavesdropped on uh, without letting you know I was listening to you. And it's the question of how do you tell your innovation story? Uh, how do you build a narrative around the effort and how do you shape it and deliver it to the internal stakeholders to get buy-in? when you're explaining sometimes projects and processes that are unfamiliar to an audience. And Eric, I'm thinking of you and, and how you've sort of become a master storyteller in your own right um, over the last many years of telling the Lean Startup tale. And I wonder if you could kick us off by letting us in on, on your secrets or your thinking of how you build an innovation narrative uh, in whatever context you might be in. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks everybody for coming and, and for being part of this. Yeah, this topic is very much on my mind because I'm, I'm literally, as we speak, in the process of uh, going through the first pass pages of the new manuscript for the new book, which will come out this fall. So I'm, I'm like, I've been heads down in writer mode, and now I have to kind of switch, switch gears and start talking again. And of course, storytelling is ostensibly the same when you're writing as, as when you're speaking, as when you're pitching, as when you're working in PowerPoint. But of course, it's a little bit different uh, depending on the mode. And what I think is really interesting is we're not used to thinking about startup storytelling is easy because it's really not. I mean, those of you who've ever pitched a venture capitalist or try to raise money, try to tell your story in the press as a, as a new startup, uh, it, it's excruciatingly difficult, but at least it's very concrete. So when you're trying to pitch for an innovation, like I have an idea for a better mousetrap, here's my idea for you know, Uber for dogs or Airbnb for drones or whatever the thing is, like whatever your pitch is, at least you're telling a specific concrete story about a specific thing, innovation and innovation, innovation used as a noun. When we get into innovation as a system, like a lot of folks who, who come to these events are either startup founders themselves whose company has gone past product market fit and are trying to think about how do I empower the founders that work for me, the entrepreneurs that work for me to bring that founder's mindset into the whole organization. Some people are trying to reestablish that startup DNA inside an established organization. And some are, are founders who are just trying to think ahead to anticipate that problem. What we all have in common is we have to try to explain innovation like as, an, as a process. So how do I get you to believe if you're an investor in a public company, if you're an executive dubious about whether our company should or should not invest in, in an innovation system like Lean Startup, how do I tell you that story? And that's like pitching a startup you know, but times a thousand in terms of difficulty because it's a, it's a very abstract question about what are the results going to be. And it requires you to blend in many different specific stories. And as a result, if you look at, I mean, I talk to a lot of public company CEOs who are really frustrated because they think they've had innovation happen in their company, but Wall Street won't give them any credit for it. So they can't get their stock price to go up. They can't get, the, they can't get investors to anticipate future growth through better earnings multiples, et cetera. And part of the problem is that most people's innovation story is BS. We all know it. The theory is, it's like, what's your theory? Why are you going to have more innovation? We're going to hire the best people and empower them to think more creatively. And it's like, uh-huh. It's like the same dumb platitudes as everybody. So I think the first and most important thing in coming up with an innovation story is having an actual framework that people can relate to that helps them understand why it's going to work. 
And if you think about that, that really is the same as a startup pitch. I can be as concrete as I want with my whiz-bang demos, but at the end of the day, there's this question, why is this really going to work? Of course, I happen to think Lean Startup is a pretty good framework for answering that question because we're able to draw on uh, things that people understand, like the scientific method, right? So if I'm operating more scientifically in my innovation approach than somebody else, and you can not only see how that is likely to work, but it might be able to work at scale. If I'm able to incorporate principles from lean manufacturing, from customer development, from agile development, from design thinking, all the different bits and pieces that we draw on as a movement, then that gives you a point of connection to uh, help someone understand. But the second thing that's really important about a story is that it, it is concrete and sticky and specific. And that's where having a system that is both scientific and rooted in things like minimum viable product is so helpful. Everyone I've seen be successful at enterprise-wide transformation has been able to draw on many specific stories of innovators using these techniques to say, here's a specific situation where this way of thinking worked and then dramatically cut cycle time and help this specific customer work better, you know, change the culture of this specific team. So it allows us to be both broad and abstract with our principles and also very concrete and specific with our stories. Fantastic start to the session. Thank you, Eric. And I saw some people writing down Airbnb for drones. So we'll see that. Yeah, I'm look sure. it up. That's going to be a good yeah, one. Yeah, that's going to be good. One. Sure. Um, we've got great questions. I'm going to try to start high level and get more concrete as we go. So if you ask a sort of hyper specific question, hold with it. It might come around in 20 minutes or so. Um, let's start with this one. I, I like it. It comes in from Anonymous, which is great. I, I bet you didn't know that Anonymous was using. Hey, Anonymous. Up, what's up? Yeah, good. I like uh, the math. <laughs> Eric, what's the biggest tragedy you've seen in the failed application? of lean startup principles, which I oh. think you could sort of merge into sort of uh, oh. maybe com common pitfalls and uh, common mistakes. But let's start with the, the big word here of the idea of tragedy. Tragedy. I love that. I love it. I mean, I appreciate you being anonymous to ask about tragedy. Well, so here's the thing. This is going to sound kind of like maybe it's not like cop out. I don't know. But if we're really being honest with each other, the way that most companies are operated, regular old work is a tragedy. I mean, seriously, the vast majority of people who go into a job every day today, I mean, I meet a lot of them now in my travels, and I love to ask people, how do you know that the work you do every day matters to anybody but your boss? And people hate being asked that question because certainly if their boss is around, it's a nightmare. But even privately, off the record, at the bar, after the workshop or whatever, how do you really know? And people say, well, you know, we get really nice letters from customers that like, and it's like, but is that because of the work that you did or part of the work of some inspired, uh, you know, product manager 10 years ago? And people say, well, but you know, our customer complaints are down or our margin, like some, they can point to some specific aspect, but first of all, how do you know that you contributed to that? How do you know that has anything to do with your specific work? And maybe you're just riding industry trends. Like, how do you really know? And the tragedies that drive me crazy are the people who, who don't know and therefore whose who's life whose energy and passion is like being wasted. That, that drives me crazy. But that's not what Anonymous wants to hear about. So, so people, so, so tragedy. So, so there are people who try and fail to implement Lean Startup, but I can't really characterize those as tragedies because uh, the worst case scenario is they wind up where they started. And I've worked with a number of companies where like my favorite, I used to think that companies that were really disorganized and chaotic internally would have it be easier to adopt something like Lean Startup because there's less inertia to overcome. It's like, listen, no one knows what's going on anyway. No one listens to their boss anyway. So there's total freedom to try something new. So I would meet with the team and we would go do, tell them work in a new way, Lean Startup. They get all excited about it. They start to adopt it. And, you know, I come back a few weeks later and say, hey, 
how's it going? I say, yeah, well, we, we were doing Lean Startup, but then we got excited about this other thing. You know, someone else walked into our office the next day and said, hey, why didn't you guys do Waterfall? And we're like, oh, yeah, Waterfall is so great. So you can't make any progress because every time you do something, like the fact that nobody listens to anybody, there's no way to keep to get the company to adopt anything systematically. It's just up to individual people, and it's a, it's a total mess. Those situations are pretty sad. But the most tragic, I'm trying to think like, like tragic really is someone who thinks they're adopting Lean Startup well, but but it's actually led them down a false path. Like, for example, someone, an entrepreneur came into my office and really was excited to pitch me on how lean their virtual reality startup was. It was a few years ago before VR was super hot, and they knew I had worked in virtual worlds. They knew I was going to be really proud of them. They said, we've been working on this new virtual world thing for three years, and we spent almost no money on it. You know, we've been able to, like, scrap together with volunteers and students and interns, and we've just, like, it's so scrappy and lean. It's so great. So, you know, we're going to be able to launch this thing finally after three years of working. And of course, I was like, and, and how many customers have you had use it? And they're like, oh, well, we can't afford that because we're being so lean. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, what have I done? Uh, or another case, it was another one, but, but definitely the worst is the people that A-B dev them, themselves into selling porn. Anyone ever encountered this? You, you get someone who gets so excited about split testing and analytics, they figure, well, I'm just going to do whatever makes the clicks go up into the right. So, so I'm just going to keep testing and testing and testing until I get maximized some engagement number. And like you were selling like psychic hotlines in no time because, you know, you want to be a Ponzi, like Ponzi schemes grow amazingly fast and, you know, porn has great click through rates and you just like, you can easily deceive yourself into doing all kinds of, of terrible things because you forgot that, that the purpose of all this experimentation is to validate some specific hypothesis. So no vision, no lean. Those are the tragedies I, I guess you probably wanted to hear about. Thank you. Anonymous, were you pleased? Did that work for you? Yeah, right. Hey, let us know. All right, I think they were happy. Uh, let's go the other way then. From tragedy to major success, uh, I like this question. Uh, what's the secret to sustaining a lean methodology and a lean approach when you're at a startup that actually attains explosive growth because of lean philosophy? So how do you... How do you keep it going and not sort of slip into um, more traditional modalities once you've reached a certain scale? I love this question. This is one of my favorites because people really haven't thought it through. So you're, you're a st so I talk to a lot of startup founders. I say, okay, if you hate big companies so much, why are you trying to create a new one? And they're like, no, 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 no. My big company is not going to be like those other big companies. It's going to be dynamic and innovative and it's going to be, you know, super, super exciting. Like they have certain like cultural values they're going to maintain respect for the truth. And we're going to apply integrity. It's not going to be politics and bureaucracy and whatever, like whatever their beliefs are about what their culture should be. I say, okay, great. How, like, what's the plan? Really? They say, well, we only hire the best. We have a really high hiring bar. We make sure we, you know, doctrinate everyone. That's like, they, they kind of have some idea that like, they're going to make sure that only people who get it, but then they go through hyper growth. So in hypergrowth, you might go from a 10-person company to a 500-person company like in six months or you know, a year. You go from 500 or 1,000 to 10,000 in a year, 18 months. Like anyone ever been through that? Just think about mechanically what's going on. You, in often cases, you are hiring 2x, 3x, 5x, 10x number of people that used to work at the company. So after a year or 18 months, but heck, very conservative. Like let's say in a year, you only double in size or triple in size. Even in that scenario, you ask yourself, how many of the people in this company who work here have ever had the experience of working in a company that was pre-product market fit? And you're like, gosh, not very many, because what are the odds that of the thousand people I just hired, you know, they were previously, their previous job, they were founders of a hyper-growth startup. Just law of large numbers says probably not, plus if they're, hot, <laughs> they're the founders of a hyper-growth startup, why are they working for you? 
So most people you hire, what were they doing before? They worked at another tech company, another big company, an established company, they're straight out of school. They come from a very traditional work environment, just by default, just because that's who's out there to hire. And if you hire a lot of them, even if you keep the bar really high, you're going to wind up hiring people with bringing all these old habits with them. And if you don't do anything, everyone just does their job the way they think they're supposed to do it. So everyone has imported with them this mental model of what a corporation is that is not very entrepreneurial, actually, because most people have never actually lived through hypergrowth. It's very rare. Most people were hired after the hypergrowth was already over. So they actually have never seen what it looks like. And the really dangerous thing about that is that those employees have never seen your company as anything but a success. Right? Like, I mean, I was just, I was at a, a I shouldn't name names. I was just at a, a super unicorn company the other day that has a billion users. And most people that work there, the startups only ever had a billion users. So like when they launch a new product and it gets like 100,000 users in a month, most of the people in the company are like, that sucks. Only 100,000, please. I mean, if it was 100 million, maybe I'd be impressed. But even then, like, oh, it's got to be more like a billion. We're about a billion. Of course, the founder is sitting there being like, oh, my God, what have I done? Right? If we got 100,000 users our first month when we were tiny. We would have recognized that as a huge success. How exciting. But of course, all these people that work for me, they're all idiots. And I would have to say to that founder, listen, you're not, they're not idiots. You're the idiot. You hired them. You told them what to do. You built the systems around them that forced them to think this way. It's your fault. And I'm not very popular as a consultant for that reason. It's okay. I don't mind. I didn't grow up hoping like, oh, I hope one day I'll be a consultant. That'll be great. Um, but what is important then is to think about, okay, how do I replicate for the people that work for me the experience I had of being a founder? How do I create that scarcity ownership mindset, that feeling that if I don't make it happen, nobody else will? How do I create the funding climate that they need? So, so I talk a lot in the new book about entitlement funding, the kind of like annual appropriations process that most companies and governments go through compared to the metered funding approach of a venture capitalist. So if you don't really own your own funding, there's no way to have any sense of scarcity about it. Anyway, so there's like a series of, of, of practices that are about replicating that experience and framework accountability process um, system for the employees of the company. Or another way to think about it is to see your established company now as an ecosystem that is comprised of many startups. And you as the CEO no longer as just the entrepreneur who makes things happen. You're also, in a lot of these cases, you're like the board member or, or investor who holds those other entrepreneurs accountable. And for most entrepreneurs, this is not a very easy thing to do. It's, it's kind of a weird through the looking glass moment because in your own mental model of your own journey, you're always the hero. You're the protagonist who has to overcome those annoying gatekeepers and flatter your board and do all the crap that being an entrepreneur requires. Now, all of a sudden you're saying, wait, no, I have to make other people the heroes of their own journey and I'm just the supporting player. Like that's not that exciting, but let me tell you, it's a lot more exciting than having all the entrepreneurs you hire quit because your company's too bureaucratic. Can I ask one follow-up, Eric? If, if you yeah. could give one recommendation for a practice or an exercise or an experiment or some structural element to the company that would challenge the assumption of abundance that you're talking about, how do you challenge the assumptions of abundance when you're just surrounded by abundance? How do you get back that scarcity mentality? Could you give us one tip? Oh, yeah. I'll tell you a tip I learned from my friend Todd Park, who was the CTO of the United States, um, you know, worked for Barack Obama for many years, was involved in the healthcare.gov rescue, and is, you know, a, a personal hero. 
And he was one of the pioneers who brought lean startup uh, methods into the deep, deep federal government bureaucracy. I mean, we're talking about the most bureaucratic and political organizations in the world and like way worse than your company. Okay. Much more difficult politics than your company. So actually you some of those people are maybe in the room right now. So you're, you're yeah, talking yeah, right yeah. Now. shout out to my friends from HHS, anybody. <laughs> it's like, cause like people complain to me, oh, my company's so political. I'm like compared to Obamacare. I don't know. I mean, no offense, but like that. We, these are people who have to do a, a hard, hard job under very, very difficult conditions and then don't have any of the tools of private industry. They don't have any equity ownership. They can't just quit on a whim. You can't fight like there's all kinds of private sector practices that are not available because the context is fundamentally one of public service. And yet they still are required to do the job, get it done. So one of the techniques he taught me was when you're creating an internal startup, you don't always have to make the money be what's scarce. So what is important is resource scarcity, not financial scarcity. I used to be a big believer that you have to give people equity and, and you know, to really replicate the startup experience exactly. He's like, that doesn't work. But like when he built um, teams inside of HHS, when he was the CTO of HHS, he would do something where he would get a team together. If he could, he would partner an internal innovator, like a civic servant who had been there for many years, who had a, a, an innovative idea with someone from the outside. So he'd like, he liked to bring in outside entrepreneurs or whatever. He would build a cross-functional team as best he could. And they would tell them, listen, you guys have 90 days to deliver this outcome, whatever the outcome was. So like, you know, you have to send up this website, you, know, you got to figure out this policy, you have to get it done in 90 days. Of course, the first reaction the teams would say is like, oh, that's great. I'm sure in 90 days we can like make, get, make a recommendation about who should be in the meeting to convene the stakeholders to decide the plan to do the thing. And he'd be like, yeah, that's not what I'm asking. I'm saying at the end of 90 days, the project team is disbanded unless the thing is accomplished. And if it's accomplished, then you can earn another 90 days. But here's what, here's what success looks like. And of course, people would look at him like that's impossible. But then he, you know, the right kind of person would be like, but I can have total freedom during those 90 days? Okay, sold. Let's go. And he built incredible things with these 90-day internal startup teams where, like, it was not a financial scarcity. Time was the scarce resource, and that was just as good. So that's one, one neat trick that can transform your federal agency. And that sounds like the uh, title of a viral ink article. One neat trick. Yeah, exactly. That can One neat good. trick. Uh, good. Uh, thank you for all your questions and for also for upvoting the questions that you like. Let's go out of that space, Eric, over to uh, Enterprise. Uh, the question here I don't think is meant to be cynical. I think it's truly earnest. Does lean startup actually work in large enterprises? And then they're going to ask for proof. Uh, which companies are furthest along? Can you tell us the story of a company or a couple companies that you think are really nailing it? Listen, I'm more skeptical than you can than, than you are. Okay, when I first started being asked by big companies to to work with them on lean startup, I was just like, why is this? Why are you calling me? Seriously, like when I, I wrote in my book, look, uh, you know what happened. The way this played out for me personally was I had made this this kind of bold pronouncement that a startup is a, a you know a human institution designed to create something new under conditions of extreme uncertainty, and therefore had nothing to do with size of company, industry, or sector. To me, that was like a fascinating uh, philosophical statement of deductive logic. I was like, look, that's an interesting fact that it has nothing to do with it. And I was like, so therefore, this can be used in any kind of company, any side, you know. And I wasn't like, so people would come up to me after talks in the early days and they'd say, okay, I accept your challenge. And I'd be like, what challenge? They'd say, well, you said it could work in a big company and I'm a general manager of a division of new company charged with building new products. And so... I, you know, you got to come over to my company and we got to work on this thing together. And I would say, listen, good luck. Best of luck with that. Right. I mean, it's, uh, that's what I said in the talk, but I gave the talk already. So you're starting, you have the information like 
best of luck. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. We'd really like you to come and work with some of our teams to help us figure out what to do. And I was like, I don't think I would be really qualified for that. You know, I don't, I know working in big companies. I don't know enough about corporate politics and budgetary and all this stuff. I didn't know anything about anything. And, and, and they would look at me like, listen, I don't think you're listening to me. I already told you I was a general manager of a division. I got politics covered. Okay. I know how to get budget. Like I can handle all that stuff. And in fact, generally the people that would come up to me were quite visionary and they had already convinced their CEO to give them a team or a, a division or some kind of new initiative underway to do some new innovation. And of course, uh, I learned eventually the pattern was like they'd gotten 18 months worth of budget runway to deliver some results. And they always came to me like nine months in. <laughs> no one comes to the talk like after 30 days when it's going great. And by, by 17 months, it's too late. So it's just long enough for them to realize, wait a minute, what exactly is my team supposed to be doing every day? Because everyone I brought into this new project I followed all the instructions in the innovator solution. I mean, we've got a separate P&L and we're off the corporate bone. We've done everything right. But the, the habits of mind, the specific things the team does, it's still everyone's still trained in waterfall, old school management stuff. So everyone's still doing the old stuff. So what should I, you know, and they were interested. How do we implement? So, so a few corporate visionaries kind of dragged me kicking and screaming to collaborate with them on some of these projects. And I was very skeptical that it would work. But I felt like an obligation to, to to carry through on my boast. I had said this would work, so it was kind of on me to prove that it would. And I think, well, at least if it doesn't work, I'll learn something really interesting about, about the theory. And so all I can tell you is I have personally witnessed it with my own eyes. And you know, I write, I'm trying to write this story. I wrote some of the stories in the, in the Leader's Guide and, and of course in the new book, I'll, I'll publish a bunch more. Um, where on, on multiple occasions, I've been accused of, of engaged, engaging in nefarious arts like drugging the water or using hypnotism. Because what happens is we'll do like, we do this all the time, we do like a three-day workshop with a team where they come in, their resumes are like 100% corporate lifers who've worked in the most boring industries you can possibly imagine. And the most boring functions within the most boring industries. So like, you know, the finance director of a, you know, energy extraction company, right? Just like you, you name it, like a, a Sorry, I apologize. Yeah, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But like just other people don't realize how, how interesting it is to be, you know, the IT director for an insurance company or something like that. Um, and, and you come into those workshops and people would say that here's a team of people that doesn't have a single innovative bone in their body. You know, they don't look the part. They're not, this is not startup material. Like, give me a break. And three days later, those teams would propose to their own bosses that they, uh, get on a plane to go wherever the customer was, even if it's an internal customer. Um, within 90 days, have an MVP stood up. We know that they're going to iterate once a month, and they like really make the pitch that they're going to do this entrepreneurial thing. And the energy and the vibe and the, just the like morale of a team like that—it's tr truly transformative. And then people would look at me like, "What? What's the trick? What did you do? What's what did you? Yeah, we bring sometimes we bring them out to, to workshops in San Francisco, and they'd be like, "What? What'd you give them in San Francisco?" Make them change to like this radical change. Like I, they think I put something illicit in the water. And I'm always like, listen, I didn't do anything. What we finally did is allowed people to express their innate creativity by structuring the process of supporting them to do that. And it sounds so kumbaya. We're like, oh, great. Everyone unlock your creativity. Like, yeah, if I put up a poster in my office, everyone be more creative. That's going to do it. And of course, like there's a real science to the specific techniques and practices we, we advocate for but I've seen it with my own eyes. Now, the second part of your question, which is could you name drop some big names to impress me with why this is being adopted that I can go name drop for my boss? I'm not gonna do it. And here's why. 
I really think companies should speak for themselves. Every business book you read, it's like Apple and Southwest and like the same five companies adopt my thing and therefore it's great. And it's all, you know, it's ridiculous. So I don't, I try not to do that as much as I can. We put on these events. I mean, every Lean Startup Conference we've ever done, the video is available for free online. You can just go listen to what companies have said in their own words and you judge for yourself if what they're saying sounds legit or not. And like, it's not that hard to do the research to find out. I mean, like this thing has now touched tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of people. So it's not, it's not hard to find people who've lived through those transformations. But uh, yeah, I've seen it firsthand. It does work. Thank you. All right. I promised that we would get more granular as we go. And I know you have a hard stop at 545, Eric. So we'll do one more question. But if you answer it really fast, you can do two. So this one's uh, yeah. for you. Okay? Do I seem like the, the answering fast? Type? Yeah. I, yeah, I, can, go few, it, I can go a few minutes later. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, th I know this I'm one's great. Uh, the most popular question that's come in. When, if ever, is retention not the right metric for product market fit? And if it isn't, what should you measure instead? Easy for dating sites. You don't want to be on a dating site on a long-term basis. You want off. So customer retention would be terrible. All right, you win. You get another one uh, because you did so well with that one. Good job. Um, let's do a couple personal questions because the people in this room, I don't know if you're like me, you don't get to hang out with Eric Reese very often. So um, what's, what's on your must-read business book list? Or I'll tweak the question a bit. Are you reading anything right now? Have you read anything lately uh, that really impressed you or inspired you or that you've uh, walked away and, and kept thinking about? It's funny, when you are writing a business book, um, you, you literally can't read other business books at a certain point. Like it makes your head hurt. So there's actually a bunch of really cool books that I'm excited to read, but I, I haven't been able to actually do it like other than just to like check them out. Um, and, and so I, I have to read in other genres. So like I, my reading has all been like, I think it almost been 100% sci-fi of late. Um, really enjoyed John Scalzi's new book. But yeah, no, uh, not, not anything that will help you in business. He's he kind of a nut, but he's a very, very innovative one. Definitely a lot of fun to follow on Twitter for sure. And, and, and deals with trolls better than most of us. So Indeed. We, can all, we can all learn something from him. Um, I, I wanna ask you one question because I think we've got four minutes left before we gotta let you go. Um, it, and it actually ties to what you just said about Twitter trolls. Um, Back in the fall, Eric, you made a choice uh, to to become vocal about your political point of view uh, and yeah. on social media to sort of express your hopes and your fears uh, and then to deal with the kind of backlash from some people about that. And I, we're not getting into politics now, but what I want to ask you to talk to the room about is sort of our parting word of wisdom. Everybody in this room is in a highly politically charged atmosphere, whether it's a nonprofit or government en entity or or some big enterprise. And, and I, I know that the people in this room that I've spoken to grapple with how to be uh, transparent and authentic while also being these agents of change. And I wonder if you could give us your point of view, Eric, is sort of how do you do that? How do you balance the sort of authenticity with the, the, the burden of leadership and of advocacy that you have to take on when you are driving forward a lean approach inside an organization or, or any kind of team? Yeah, this is a very hard question. And listen, I, I took what I said last fall very seriously. Um, I got a lot of hate mail about it, as you can imagine. Not always with the greatest grammar, punctuation in the, in the hate mail. But I took it seriously. And I, and I did my best to reply. Anyone who was not abusive in their hate mail, I tried to write them back and say, listen, I appreciate your point of view. And, and I think they, you know, they have a point, right? When you you give someone a platform, you give their attention, you don't want to feel like they're 
um, doing something that's at odds with your own values. And it's why most in most business situations and most leadership situations, we keep our politics to ourselves because we generally feel like we're operating in an environment of goodwill where there's um, there's kind of there's legit legitimacy to all sides and and it's not one of those moments when we have to really be polarized. And I felt I finally came to the conclusion last fall, and I've, I've certainly felt since then that this is just not one of those times, and therefore it requires extraordinary, uh, extraordinary action. Um, but even I find that disturbing. I mean, I, I, I think it's easy to kind of be ideological and think that we're always at the precipice of a tragedy, um, and I think that is a mistake. So, so one, one, one thing I would say is that when you're going to be authentic, like there's no way to be authentically ideological. You either have the integrity to think for yourself and like express an opinion that's true to yourself, or you have a fealty to to a team and uh, and a rigid set of beliefs that you've kind of imported from somebody else, and you're 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 advocating for that that specific outcome. And I just think there's no way to do that authentically. There's something really um, antithetical to to being a, a an authentic person. To, to be a rabid idol, ideologue. So I, so I think that's, that's one important thing. And I, I think one of the things that's really sad about this moment is the extent to which ideology has started to rot certain people's brains. But in, the, in the terms of the question about leadership and, and lean transformation and everything, like this is a way bigger problem than politics that we face right now. And I think all of us are really called to play a role in it. Um, there's a new, we have to build a new social contract fundamentally from scratch. Like the changes that are happening in our world uh, require a whole new way of thinking about the role of business, the relationship between capital and labor, uh, the proper organization and functioning of government, um, the interrelationship of different factions and cultures of people within one heterogeneous society and lots more. I mean, there's just these big, big existential questions that are being raised. And I feel like our grandparents had to go through this in the most wrenching and violent way possible to forge the civic contract that we inherited and that has kind of gotten stale on our watch. Like, and so we as a generation of leaders are called upon to help forge a new one, to take the advantage of technology, turn technology and social media and all of the potential things that are coming down the pipe automation um, I mean, I laugh, we laugh about drones and Bitcoin, all this stuff, but like the, you know, decentralized autonomous corporations are coming. This is all stuff is coming. The true, true machine learning, you know, for white collar jobs is, is here. So we have to take that and turn it into something that works and, and drives broadly shared prosperity for everybody, or we are going to absolutely be shredded by demagogues and, and, and polarization and eventually war and, and self-destruction. Like we really have to face that choice. And we can't wait for some other politician to solve that problem. That's gonna be a problem that every civic leader in every field, every industry, every sector has gotta stand up and say, this is what our new civic religion is gonna be. And I think we know what those values are. We have to stand up for truth telling and integrity. We have to stand up for broadly shared prosperity. We have to, share, we have to, we have to stand up for a massive investment in public goods that benefit everybody. We, we know that that's required for people to resist the call of demagoguery in every civilization. But we also have to stand up for scientific, for science itself, for scientific-based policy, decision-making, management, science, uh, as well as, and this is where I think we, especially in the startup movement, have a role to play. We have to stand up for the principle that entrepreneurial opportunity uh, is owed to every citizen. 
like right now, we know that genius is statistically evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. We know there are lots of people who would make outstanding startup founders who simply don't have the very modest resources and kind of personal, social, financial safety net to get started. Uh, we know that. So we know that the number of startups that are being created is a tiny fraction of what it could be if we lived in a more just and more meritocratic society. So we as a movement, you know, I don't think entrepreneurship is the sole solution to this problem, but we have a role to play in forging that new contract, in kind of building that new civic religion and kind of standing up for the principle that a more scientific, modern management system benefits everybody. So yeah, I call on everybody to, to join in that quest, if you're willing regardless of your politics.